0: I'm sure you've heard, uh, at one time or another, people complain about the nature of the church and, and that they would be more open and uh, desirous of being in a church, uh, but it's just the people that's the problem. And, uh, and I, I get that. I mean, I understand that and what people are asking for. I mean, to join a church and, and to come a, a, among a body, relationships can be quite messy, I mean, you're getting drawn with people that you aren't naturally gravitating towards. And uh, there can be conflict and hardship, and, and, and these relationships get really sticky and messy, and it's a problem. It's problematic. Uh, it, it really is our inability to deal well with conflict that we all have that, um, that I think is so ruinous to our joy and our happiness in our marriages, in our church, in business relationships, in our family. It's really significant. I mean, how, if, you were, if I were to just have you up here alone, if I, if I said to you, how do you handle conflict, what would you say? I mean, how do you handle it? Do, do you tend to brood over words spoken? Do you tend to get your feelings easily hurt by a comment made or action done? Are you the silent type? When you get offended, do you just go underwater like a sub? I mean, you run silent, you run deep. Or do you explode and just blast on the person that has offended you? These are questions you need to be asking yourself. Jesus last week in his teaching on fulfilling the law spoke about needing a greater righteousness than that of the Pharisees if you want to enter the kingdom of God. And, And he's going to begin teasing out for us what does this greater righteousness mean? In fact, the next six sermons are all going to be about what is a greater righteousness among the citizens of the kingdom. Today, it's a greater righteousness as displayed in our relationships with each other. Having godly relationships. Now, now hear me clearly. Godly relationships will never be void of conflict. The Christian, though, deals with the conflict in a God-glorifying way, seeking peace and reconciliation. And and here's how Jesus is going to teach it. He's going to use the sixth commandment, do not murder. And and he's going to unfold this for us because you know what murder is? Murder is the ultimate fracture of relationships. That that anger has gotten so much that you kill the person over some issue. And so he's going to unfold this for us to help us begin to walk in a relationship that's godly, that's seeking reconciliation. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5. And we'll be reading um, 21 to 26. Matthew 5, 21 to 26. Okay. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with the accuser with your accuser, while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Okay, so these are just, I think it can be a, a convicting but freeing sermon. So Jesus is fulfilling the law. So what we learned last week. Fulfilling the law, he's doing all the requirements of the law, but he's also unfolding the meaning of the law. And right here, he's taking issue with the Pharisees. You notice he said, you've heard it said, but I say to you. So Jesus isn't contradicting the Old Testament. he's not disputing the authority of the Old Testament. What he's doing is he's taking issue with the Pharisees' interpretation of the Old Testament. When he says, you have heard it said, that's where the issue is. This is the teaching you've heard on the sixth commandment. See, the Pharisees were literalists, almost over-literalists. And what they did was they, they shrunk the law into just don't commit homicide. If you don't commit homicide, then you're righteous. And so most of the people that they would speak to, of course, were not murderers. And so they would hear this and they would say, well, I've got this down. I mean, I've met the law. Anytime you narrow a law down, it's going to be easier to keep, and thus you have this sense of, yeah, I've got it. I've got this one. In fact, even today, when I, I, I like to ask people it, when the conversation is appropriate for it, and I just like to say, well, how do you view God's, you know, God's view of your life? How, how do you see God looking at your life? And most people say, I think God's okay with me. And so I ask, well, well, why do you think that? I mean, what's the basis of you thinking God's in great shape with you? And generally, they refer to some external compliance, like, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't raped anybody. They look to this external compliance of a law, and they think they're okay with God. And, and what Charles Spurgeon, that great London preacher of the 19th century, said, to narrow a law is to measurably annul it. In other words, if I can shrink wrap it down, then I can be okay with it. But what Jesus does is he magnifies it. He won't let us go there. He magnifies it. He goes deeper. He goes closer to the heart of the issue. Now, I I found this, I experienced this in a a different sort of way. So being, um, being a male, mirrors are not so significantly important to me. You may say, well, that answers a lot of things. But. You shave, <coughs> you get dressed, you may look in front of a mirror, and you think, eh, everything looks somewhat in order, and you move on. So Carol one day brings home this, uh, <coughs> this new piece of equipment for the bathroom, and it was called a magnification mirror, and uh, I'd never seen one before. And uh, so I looked at it, and uh <coughs> it looked so blurry. I thought, lousy mirror. It had a little light, turned that on. And then um, I got a little closer to it, and all of a sudden I realized, there's a man in there, and I've never met him before. I looked at that thing, and I got close, and I mean, I'm, I'm here to tell you, it was frightening. I thought, wow, you have weathered. And I just remember thinking, this has got to get out of here. Um but, but what it did was it revealed who I really am. But I just had never gotten so close to see. It was revealing things about me that I never took the time or had the ability to see. And it was a true representation of who I am. Not a pretty one, but it was a true one. Well, what Jesus does here is he takes it from this external compliance and he drives the law to the heart. Look what he says. But I say to you that if anyone has anger towards their brother, you are liable to judgment. So, what Jesus is doing is he's giving a truer, a deeper meaning of this command. What he's actually doing is he's showing us this radical nature of God's law. He moves murder from an act to an attitude. That that now, if you have hatred or anger towards your brother, now this anger—the word used for anger—isn't like that flash of, like if you hit your thumb with a hammer. You know, there's a flash of, you know, just being so mad that you hit yourself. He's not speaking about that kind of anger. It's a settled anger. It's an anger that has had time to move past displeasure into brooding and frustration and dissatisfaction and resentment. It's that anger that begins to come up out of you through nitpicking or tears or silence or exploding or, or criticisms or self-righteousness. These are the things that give evidence to that brooding, low-grade anger that exists with you. And what Jesus is saying is, no, if you do that, you're a murderer. Now, it's obvious to you, I hope, that Jesus doesn't perfectly equate murder, homicide, with you know The act of murder with an attitude of hate. But I think Jesus is showing us that they're a lot closer than you think. That murder lies within anger. And that's no different than what John the Apostle said in his first letter. He says, if anyone hates his brother, in 315, he says, you're a murderer. That's what he's speaking about. Now, I know you may be thinking right now, well, is all anger murder? Well, no, I would say not all anger is murder. You know, we want to look at the cause of this anger. The KJV actually translates this verse, I think, very well when he says that anyone who is angry with his brother without cause is liable to judgment. There are causes that will determine the rightness of your anger. Now, I would say a general rule of thumb is this, that when I'm angry over a perceived offense or someone ignoring me, If it has to do with my name and my character, generally, it's probably going to be drifting towards the unrighteous anger. If my anger is birthed over the the maltreatment of an innocent individual or the name of God, then, then it's going to probably be sliding a little bit more toward a righteous anger. But it's a very difficult thing, and the majority of the cases is the unrighteous anger. Aristotle said this. Now, I don't read Aristotle. I don't know that I've ever read much more than a chapter, but I came across this quote and uh, I loved it. He says, Anyone can become angry. That is easy. But to be angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, and in the right way, that is not easy. And that's true. Here's another way that you know anger is not right it gives birth to words. In other words, your attitudinal anger becomes a verbal anger. And you see it in the next couple verses. He says that if anyone insults his brother, he'll be liable to the council. That's the Sanhedrin. If anyone calls his brother a fool, then you'll be liable to the fire of hell. Now, what he's doing here is all of our anger that is inside generally breaks the surface of the water in our words. I'm going to explain what this means because it's kind of confusing. Um, anyone that insults his brother, the word is raka. It's an Aramaic word. And, and we don't really know what it means other than it's a term of derision. It, it, it's like calling somebody dim-witted or, or a blockhead. I know all of us are being convicted right now on that. But, but, but it's more than just a, a kind of a joke. Uh, they think actually the word raka, it, it almost sounds like when you draw spittle up into your mouth to spit on the ground in disdain for somebody. That, that's the idea here. The idea is one of, of looking down on someone as inferior because they're not as smart as you are, they're not as sophisticated as you are, they're not as classy as you are. That You, you hold a person in contempt because they're not your station in life. Now, the fool, anyone who calls someone a fool, uh, that's our word for moron, but it doesn't really have to do with IQ. It has to do more with a moral contempt over somebody. That you look at somebody and you, and you hold in superior position uh, to their spirituality and to their morality. The word actually in Hebrew means rebel or apostate. It, it goes along with Psalm 14.1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So we're looking at him as, you know what? They don't have it like we have it in terms of their spirituality. And so when our anger breaks a surface in words, of slander and gossip and that sort of thing. You know that the anger is unrighteous. So Jesus is saying this. To not murder involves your attitudes and your words. This is a good way to look into our hearts to discern the level of anger that you have. I mean, if you're sitting there thinking, well, I haven't murdered anyone, and you're taking comfort from that, I want to say that's not the point. Have you hated anyone? I mean, I, I mean, have you have you brought forth harsh words about another person? Have you torn down another's character? Have you ever said these words? I hate you. Or have you ever had this thought? We'd be better off if he was just dead. I mean, have you ever had those? That's what he's going after here. I mean, he's going this is a diagnostic for us. N- now, I, I don't want you to you know, when we get to these points in sermons often, you know, w- we immediately begin justifying, excusing, and kind of getting some wiggle room here. And it reminds me of this, this story I read about W.C. Fields. Most of you probably don't know him. He was a comedian back in the early part of the 20th century, just at, the, at really at the beginning of TV. He was a, a very funny man. He was not known as a moral man, um, and so the story goes that he's sitting in his hotel room reading a Bible, and his friend walks in, and he says, W.C., what are you, what are you reading a Bible for? He would never read a Bible. And in his kind of comedic way, he just says, well, I'm looking for loopholes. He wants to look, And that's the way we listen to Scripture sometimes, is how does this not apply to me? How does this apply to my bride? Or how does this apply to somebody else? And so when you think about this injunction to not be angry to your brother, to not speak with insults and foolishness towards your brother, examine your marriages for just a minute. What level of anger, dissatisfaction, or disharmony exists right now in your relationship, and and how has it given birth to words that are hurtful and harmful to one another? I mean, what? I mean, what level of anger exists within that? Or, or how about your families with your kids? I mean, parents, when you look at your kids and they're not obeying you or they're not behaving in a way that you think is appropriate, how often are you angry or they haven't paid you the respect that you think you deserve? And that frustration that wells up and your mind goes to this idea of, my kids were just like those kids over there. Or kids, when you look at your parents and you're frustrated because they don't give you everything that your friends, you perceive your friends to be getting. And you're frustrated with your parents, because if they were just like these parents, then my life would be a lot easier. All of this is going on in the heart. This is murder, according to what Jesus is saying. Or or look in your relationship to this church. How many of you here struggle with someone in the church? You've torn down their character. You've avoided them. Or you struggle with the leadership of the church. You don't like the way we do this or that. Regardless of whether you've approached us or not on it, but there's this low-grade level of dissatisfaction with us. Or you can take it to work. I mean, it's a serious issue in work. you realize there's a 1,000 murders a year in the workplace? It's over 3.5 billion is lost on workplace anger. It's called desk rage instead of road rage. You know, the, you get passed over for a job. Maybe you're not appreciated. You're not in the inner circle of the fast-moving group within the, within the corporation. So, so, so let me just sum it up. The key to a, to a godly relationship is to look at the heart. It's not just, many of our marriages here in particular, we dress well and we look nice. But, but between the husband and wife, it's like a Cold War era. You know, the, the, there's this, the rockets aren't firing back and forth, but there's just that low-grade anger, dissatisfaction, disharmony, unhappiness with one another. I think he's speaking about that right here. I mean, it definitely calls for us, God, we need the gospel. Because I don't know if any of us get beyond this. We need the gospel to help us both to reveal but also to move forward. So this is what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that a righteousness in a relationship begins at the heart level, not at the external level. But then Jesus warns us of the threat. Now, I'm going to take the next step. The threat he's going to warn us about is trying to move us towards reconciliation. So let's just say all of us have this low-level anger in some of our relationships, in the church, in the home, whatever. Well, notice the threat. You'll notice in the text that he kind of has this ascending order of judgment. He says if you have anger in your heart, you're liable to judgment. If um, If you insult your brother, you're liable to the Sanhedrin or the religious court. And if you call your brother a fool, you're liable to the fires of hell. So so there's this ascending order, and I think what what he's telling us here is that God is is moving us through this warning to reconcile our relationships. And, And let me give you the warning in no uncertain terms here. If you harbor unrighteous anger, and you have embraced it as just part of life, it doesn't trouble you, you aren't seeking to reconcile it, you're not praying through with people who perhaps are not ready to reconcile, then it may indicate you don't belong to God. It may indicate you don't belong to God. But because it's clear that if you do these things, you see the ramping up of judgment. I think Jesus is warning us here. Take note of this. Now, in 23 to 26, he gives us two illustrations to move us beyond this warning, to have us face this threat. And and if you look with me at it, the first illustration that he gives regarding the need to reconcile because so great the threat is, the first illustration is there's a worshiper, and you can imagine him. He's bringing his sacrifice, and he's walking through the court of women. Excuse me, he's walking through the court of Gentiles. He goes into the court of women. He goes through the court of men, and he goes to the court of the priests. And there he has to stop, and he's about to offer his gift to be sacrificed. And there, on the way, he remembers, I think I may have offended somebody. I, I think I may have said something or done something that I, I think really rankled my brother. And so what he does is, and I don't want you to miss the fact that he's thinking not about who has sinned against him, he's thinking about who he may have sinned against. That was the purpose of the sacrifice, to cover his sins. And, and so he puts, the, he puts the gift down, and he goes and reconciles with his brother, And then he comes back and offers the gift. This is really important. Jesus is showing us here the necessity of reconciliation. In other words, the need for reconciliation among the brethren takes precedence over your worship. Fulfilling a religious duty is secondary to maintaining God-centered, healthy, peaceful relationships. In fact, they cannot coexist easily. We see this in First John uh, chapter 4. He says, If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Or in First Timothy, Paul writes, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger, without disputing. So, I mean, how many of you have come here on a regular basis with some degree of animosity in your souls? You're frustrated, you're angry, you're dissatisfied. And you're going to come. I mean, you you, you attend worship, you may sing songs, you may engage in a ministry, and you've kept this low anger of resentment. Do you see any contradiction there? I mean, do you not see that God is not impressed with ceremony? In other words, we we cannot kind of... It's not like a scales in God's economy, where if I just add more worship time, it's going to balance out the lack of integrity I have in maintaining my relationships. In other words, fulfilling religious duty is secondary and even opens us to hypocrisy when we try to worship through it rather than reconciling it. There is a great need uh, to bring about that reconciliation. Listen to these words from Amos. And and I'm not going to sugarcoat them. They're very strong, and I think we need to hear them as they've been given. This is God speaking now to Amos. He says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Away with the noise of your songs. This is their worship. He says, away with it. I will not listen to the music of your harps. He says, let justice roll on like a river. Let righteousness, like a never-failing stream. In other words, God is saying, I am not fooled by your external ceremony of worship and your internal conflict that you're not striving to reconcile. He goes, I'm not fooled by it. I don't want this without that. It's that simple. But the second illustration he gives us is not just the necessity of reconciliation, but the urgency of it. Look about this man who presumably has a debt that he hasn't paid, and this man's bringing him to court. And Jesus says, settle your matters quickly. In other words, come to terms quickly, reconcile quickly, even on the way to court, because if you don't, presumably if it's a debt, he'll bring the case to court, the judge will rule against you, you'll be handed over to the guard, and you'll be put in prison until you pay the last penny. I think what he's doing here is just using an example that they would have understood to encourage us to the urgency. We don't want to let time pass with these unreconciled relationships. The longer you wait to reconcile a relationship that is fractured, the harder it will be. That's the nature of conflict. It doesn't go away. It's like acid. It's corrosive. It just keeps crushing that which it lies upon. It's the, it's the cancer cell. It doesn't hit one cell, destroy it, and, and is satisfied. It keeps moving. And, and it puts you, the longer you wait, you move to an unrecoverable position. And I think that's the same reason why Paul said in Acts four twenty seven, he said, don't let the sun go down on your anger and thus give the devil a foothold. In other words, you know what happens when you go to bed angry? You get up usually more self-righteous. You feel more convinced that you're right. I really was offended. Or you begin to uh, get embarrassed and you say, I can't, I can't raise it up now. I can't deal with it now. It happened. They probably, you know what, they're probably not even thinking about it. And you begin to justify and you begin to wiggle out of what you know you need to do, which is reconcile. I mean, how many of us wait? Do you struggle with initiating reconciliation? And why do you wait? Are you afraid it's going to get worse? Do you think that's oh, not going to help anyways? Oh, I've tried it before. I'm not going to do it again. What are the excuses that you have bought into that preclude you from moving towards greater reconciliation with the people that you have conflict with? Now, I recognize, and I've been in this world long enough to know, that just because your heart's ready to reconcile doesn't mean the other person might be. And and Paul's very clear on that. He says, be at peace with all men as much as you're able. All you can do is initiate it. You may not affect a full and complete reconciliation, but the text is only calling us to initiate. That's both players in these examples in 23 and 24 and 25 and 26. They initiate it. That's what we're asking. So I think, I think the scripture is clear that the key to a godly relationship begins at the heart. And so your relationships are godly based upon the lack of anger and rancor that you have. And the threat to godly relationships is great. You see it in the warnings. And so there is that necessity and urgency to bring about reconciliation. So what do we do? So I I just want to kind of give you some, I want to give you three points, kind of the ABCs of reconciliation. This is just kind of an in-application. You won't find these published anywhere. They're right from me. Uh, Just the ABCs of reconciliation, just three things that I want you to consider. Uh, The first thing, if we're going to affect this in this church, is it has to begin with acknowledgement of your sin in the anger. Now, folks, there's a lot of ways we can deal with conflict. You can ignore it, just put a doily on it, and hope that it goes away. It usually does nothing. It just kind of sits there and bakes and just builds up steam. You can ignore it. You can explode, and that's a very effective technique to making sure nobody else will ever seek reconciliation with you again. You can explode. Uh, thirdly, you can play the victim. You can cry. You can pout. You can really act as if you're the only one offended in the party. You can do that. Uh, you can blame shift. You can just blame it on everybody else. Um, you, you can also tell other people about the conflict you have over here. That's just kind of spreading the poison. You can do those things. They're unhealthy and they're unbiblical. I would ask you to, to examine your hearts. So in table talk, we always have the men examine their souls. Examine your hearts and ask yourself, am I in conflict with people? And, and what have I done or said to increase the conflict? Or what have I not done? Or what should I have said in regard to the conflict? So you're asking yourself. You know, it's interesting, this worshiper, when he's going in the temple, he's thinking about his own sin going to bring his offering. He's not thinking about the sins of others. He's thinking about himself and, God, what have I done? That's what I'm asking you to do. And to acknowledge it, now this is the greatest struggle in pastoral ministry sometimes, is trying to get people to acknowledge their part in the, in the problem. It's really hard even to see adults squirm to explain why they really aren't at fault. And then when they repent, they do this three-quarter repentance. I hate this repentance. Well, I'm really sorry if I hurt you. Or, you know what, things were really bad and I probably shouldn't have said that. It's this repentance that there's always saving a little bit of pride. Nobody comes out and just says, you know, acted like a jerk. I was selfish. I didn't want to serve you, and I'm really sorry about that. I, I put my needs way above yours, and I treated you like trash. Would you please forgive me? There's no the circumstances, or I was tired, or I was at work. I don't mean to say those things don't have an impact, but nobody gets you angry. You get yourself angry. Jesus is a perfect person. Evidence of that, that even though he was jeered and beaten, he didn't get angry. He didn't return the insult. So, so, so we want to make sure and acknowledge our sin for what it is, that we're not looking. It, please, when you repent to your spouse or to your children or to someone else in the church, just think what you did. You don't have to dress it up with all these other reasons why you did what you did. We did it. Let's own up to it. Confess it and be done with it. It's much cleaner. It's much more healing. So first, A, acknowledge sin. And B, I would encourage you to believe the gospel, to believe in the power of the gospel to give you strength to reconcile that which you have ruptured. I mean, you see this worshiper, it's as he's bringing you the gift to God. He's thinking about the mercy of God in accepting a sacrifice for his sins. We're overwhelmed with God's grace to us in the gospel that God would take all of our sins and place them upon the Son, I mean, it's unfathomable, as, as Keith gave word in his prayer, it's unfathomable that he would have us as his children. And so this worshiper is, is really in awe of the greatness and the might of God in giving one for us so beautiful, so glorious, so effective, so sufficient, that has washed my sins away. They've washed, And, and so it gives me the grace to say, you know what? I, a sinner, now a saint, seeking to reconcile with my brother. I like what John Piper wrote about this in regards to anger. He said, most of our bitterness and anger towards others is rooted in our inability to be profoundly amazed at Christ's love for us in our sin. One must see the greatness of our sin as forgiven and justified so that we might be stunned at his grace in a deeper way, freeing us to share this grace with others. The point is that your anger is evidence you're not marveling at the gospel, that you're failing to delight in the cross of Christ. So, so acknowledge our sin, believe in the gospel, and then make roads to confess your sin. That's C, just the third point. A, acknowledge your sin. B, believe in the gospel. C, confess your sin. In both examples... Those who had given the offense sought reconciliation. They didn't say, you know what, if I hurt him that bad, he'll come to me. Or, you know what, I'm not even sure he's that bothered about it. it they, they, didn't, they didn't make their move based upon the perception of what that man or thought or didn't think. They just knew, you know what, I think I overstepped. I'm going to go and reconcile. So there's that role of confession where you're speaking and you're confessing. You're seeking forgiveness. You're repenting to him. You're saying, I have sinned against you. Would you forgive me? I'll tell you, when you do that, it removes the defenses of people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, of course, the uh, German Lutheran pastor uh, that was executed at the end of World War II by the Nazis, he had led an underground church and seminary in Nazi Germany during those years. He said this, he says, confession in the presence of a brother is the profoundest kind of humiliation. It hurts, it cuts a man down, it's a dreadful blow to the pride. To stand there before a brother as a sinner is a terror that is almost unbearable. But in the confession of concrete sins, the old man dies a painful shameful death before the eyes of a brother. In other words, the old man, that part of us that we're trying to see changed, it dies and the new man comes to the fore and comes to life. So so we want to be a church here that encourages a culture of reconciliation. We're of course going to have conflict. We have conflict in a group this big. We'll always have conflict, some measure of it. I'm not intimidated by the conflict, For me, the conflict actually just reveals, generally, my culpability in something. Conflict isn't a bad thing. Conflict in the hand of God reveals to us that which we don't want to see. It's a magnification mirror. We did bring it back in the house, but it's in a corner. No, but but, but conflict reveals much about us. We want to trust in the Spirit of God that will fill the believer to empower him to seek reconciliation with people. So how do our relationships display this greater righteousness that he's talking about? Well, we reconcile. We are people who have conflict, but that we reconcile. So let's just pray now together. I'll pray for us before we celebrate communion. And um, let's ask God, and I'm going to ask God to give you grace that for those relationships that you are currently in conflict with, that you will have the power by the gospel through the Spirit, to initiate repentance and reconciliation. And you initiate it without presuming how it has to look, because it may take the other person a minute or two to get their feet back on the ground, to understand. And if someone comes to you and reconciles, please don't question their sincerity. Just receive it as a gift of God. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the grace that you have given to us in Jesus, who is the key, the glorious reconciler of all things to you. May we, like Christ, be reconcilers one to another. Father, there are marriages here that are in deep travail. There are parental relationships that are under great strain there are, there are familial relationships um, that have had long simmering anger and frustration and bitterness that has existed between family members. There are issues in this church where people have a great deal of frustration towards the leadership, towards one another, and even at work in the community. Father, would you give us graciously of your spirit, that our eyes would be tuned perfectly to the cross, that we would see the beauty of the cross and the power of the cross. We would sense the joy of having our sins forgiven and being reconciled to you. And would that fuel us to move with greater attempts at reconciliation with others? And Father, would you be glorified as we move in light of the necessity of this And we move with urgency. And Father, I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.